Today's podcast is brought to you by Rosarium Publishing. Rosarium Publishing creates comic books, sci-fi, anthologies, kids lit, and crime stories. They have over 40 writers and artists from all over the world and over 50 titles available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Peep Game Comics, and Comixology. And they need our help. They are raising money on Indiegogo to pay for the production of 10 more titles this year. If you want to support a company that believes in the importance of diverse characters written by multicultural authors, then please donate by going to rosarianpublishing.com and clicking on the Indiegogo donation button. I'm Effie Brown, and I'm a producer of Dear White People, Real Women Have Curves. And recently, you probably saw me on HBO's Project Greenlight. And you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Rachel True, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, everybody. My name's Adina Porter. I get to play Pearly May in the WGN's Underground. And I'm also on The 100, on The CW, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. broken up into three segments. First segment is Black Panther. So we invited the one, the only, Ta-Nehisi Coates. He is the author of the new Black Panther series by Marvel Publishing that just dropped this month in April that has come with rave reviews. This comic has sold over 300,000 copies and was completely sold out. Everyone has gotten a copy of this comic old fans of Black Panther, new fans of Black Panther, people that have never picked up a comic a day in their life has gotten this comic book. And ta talks to us about origin story, about how he got connected with Marvel. And also he talks to us about race relations, how that's been very connected in his work as a writer, and also how important and passionate he is about writing this character, T'Challa and making sure that this is a very black story 
a very black universe and told from a black lens and you will be incredibly amazed by his perspectives on what you will expect from this story. So I assure you, you are going to enjoy this interview. And it is co-hosted by Joelle, Grace, Mel, and Talia. And segment two is a one-on-one interview between Joelle and Matthew Cherry. Matthew Cherry is the director of Nine Rides. Nine Rides is a film that he did all on his own on an iPhone, which is incredibly impressive, and his film premiered over at South by Southwest. So during South by Southwest, Joel sits down with Matthew Cherry, and they have a great discussion about his experience in the film Nine Rides. In our third segment, back over at South by Southwest, Jacqueline Coley interviews Pee-wee Herman. You know Pee-wee Herman from movies like Pee-wee's Big Adventure and also the TV series Pee-wee's Playhouse. Paul Rubens uh, sits down with Jacqueline and also Jacqueline interviews his co-star in the Netflix series called Pee-wee's Holiday, Joe Manganiello. And we learn a lot of things about Joe. Joe apparently is a geek. He knows a lot about tabletop gaming. And also Paul Rubens talks about this new Netflix series. And it's very interesting. It was a very fun, great roundtable interview that she had done. And I think you're going to learn a lot about both Paul and Joe in ways that you haven't quite heard before. So very insightful interview. And I think you guys will be pretty entertained. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Give us a great rating on iTunes. Keep up the great work with spreading the word about the podcast. Give us a follow. Give us a heart on SoundCloud. Comment. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you think about us on SoundCloud. Feel free to repost and share it with others. It's always good to share the love. And thanks again for tuning into our podcast. It means the world to us. So stick around, and this is episode 69 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast, Black Panther, Nine Rides, and Pee Wee Herman. Enjoy! Ta-Nehisi Coates is a writer, journalist, and educator. Coates is the national correspondent for The Atlantic, where he writes about cultural, social, and political issues, particularly as they regard Black Americans. Coates has worked for The Village Voice, Washington City Paper, and Time Magazine. He has contributed to The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Washington Monthly, O, and other publications. In 2008, he published a memoir, The Beautiful Struggle, A Father, Two Sons, and an Unlikely Road to Manhood. His second book, Between the World and Me, was released in July 2015. It won the 2015 National Book Award for Nonfiction. And he is the recipient of the Genius Grant from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation in 2015. Currently, he is the author of the new Marvel publishing book, Black Panther. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I am so excited for this interview. You guys have no idea. We have one of the most prolific writers of our time. He's a writer on race, politics, also a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant, and he is now the writer of Marvel's Black Panther that dropped this month. 
we have the one, the only, Ta-Nehisi Coates on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Ta-Nehisi, thank you so much for coming on our show. And, and I forgot to introduce, we have our co-hosts, Grace, Joelle, Talia, and Mel. Thank you, ladies, for coming on the show. No problem. Hi, y'all. Hi. Hello, hello, hello. No problem. It's Ta-Nehisi. Ta-Nehisi. It's okay. All right. So, <laughs> thank you for correcting me because I am terrible with names. It's all right. So, so Ta-Nehisi, first of all, thank you so much for coming on our show. And as comic book geeks, you know, we are all psyched for Black Panther and we're thrilled to have you as a part of it. And I remember a while back seeing a tweet exchange between you and the senior VP of publishing over at Marvel, Tom Brevoort. What was that it, was that exchange, in fact, what led you to Black Panther? Or if not, can you tell us the real origin story? <laughs> origin story. Uh, <laughs> no, I think I actually owe it to uh, Sana, um, who's uh, an editor. Sana's an editor over at Marvel. And uh, we did a program um, at the Atlantic, at the New York Ideas Festival. And I interviewed her. And we talked a bit about comics. And I think I vaguely expressed my interest there. And uh, she took it back to the office, and then Tom came to me after that. So, um, Tom's story is such a big deal to so many of us in the Black community. Do you think that now, with the racial landscape that we're living in, that audiences are hungry for a Black superhero? Evidently, man. I mean, we printed up, uh, Marvel printed up 300,000, and that sold out in like two days. And I got like, people sending me pictures of them, you know, people who ain't in the comic books, right? You know, sending me pictures of them buying comic books. So clearly there was some sort of people with their kids, you know, little black girls, little black boys, you know, with the Black Panther. And so evidently, yeah. I, I got to say, I didn't know. I mean, I'm a little surprised, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's incredible. Everybody wants Black Panther. It's it's really phenomenal to see. I know. What's going on? <laughs> We're hungry for it. Yeah, but why? <laughs> because we don't have that many Black superheroes. And Black yes. Panther is one of the most popular superheroes in Marvel publishing. And to finally see it happening. And now we've got a movie to look forward to. I think all of that culminated together is, is what got us so psyched. And then you're attached to it. So everybody's like, oh, this is going to be a real T'Challa. It's not going to be some... <laughs> A contrived version written by you know some some writer out there. Well, it it's, could it's, be. I mean, it could be right. Never wrote a comic book before. I mean, that that happens. You know what I mean? It's a skill in and of itself. And um, frankly, when I when I got the gig, I mean, that was like my huge concern. It was like I got all these theories about things I'd like to see, but now you know, come on and do it. It's like you're sitting at home and you're watching a ball game, and it's like, oh, they should have ran that play. They should have done that. And then somebody says, all right, well, why don't you you call the offense right now? Why don't you come in and call the offense? Let's see what happens. <laughs> like rubber hit the road now. So, you know, um, I don't know. It was actually a little, little scary for me when I first started. So before you started writing him, what did Black Panther mean to you personally? And through the process of developing your take on the character and his world, how, have, how has your view changed? Hmm. You know, I read the, um, the Christopher Priest run. That was like, because when hmm. I was like really, really into comics as a kid, um, there was not, uh, and this was like the 80s, late 90s, I'm sorry, 80s, early 90s, there was not a solo Black Panther book. He's mostly a, a guest star. So they, he didn't actually have much of a personality, you know, during the time that, you know, I was in my golden years for comic books. Um, and in Priest's run, you know, he's just sort of this like really mysterious 
mastermind. I mean, that was like my impression of him. You know what I mean? Like this guy who always had it figured out somehow, always two mm-hmm. steps ahead. Um, didn't say too much. You know, if you remember during that run, he's got uh, the cat Ross, who's mostly, you know, narrating the, 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 the plot. So there's not much on what he's thinking about. Um, but like when you um, go back and you write it yourself, you, you have to develop some independent theory of who the character is. And that's rooted in what other people have done, but you know, it, it has to be yours. It has to be your take. It should be your take. And you know, my theory of him been ended up being that uh, he was king. He's very proud to be king. He loved his country, but he did not necessarily always enjoy being king. And that became one of the, the, the crucial things for me. And you know, I, I based that in a lot of you know the character's history. You know, his willingness to leave his country for long periods of time to hang out in Hell's Kitchen, hang out with the Avengers, you know, do all this sort of crazy stuff, be a school teacher somewhere, you know, go explore the universe with the Ultimates right now or, you know, with the Avengers before that. You know, um, and what's up with T'Challa, like, not having any, like, Wakandan love interest? Right? I know! Right? <laughs> yes. like, what's up with that? Yes. What's yeah. up he with does- that? He doesn't spend enough time there to find one. <laughs> I know! That's like a statement, right? So, I mean, yeah. we got... Storm, we got Monica Lynn, we got a little thing with Spectrum, maybe, you know, I mean, but there's no, um, damn, you know, what kind of women ain't good enough for you, bro? You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. What's going on, man? Does on? Sh- but, yeah. but does Shuri have a man? I don't even think Shuri has a yeah, man. I she had a little something with some dude. They broke out of a prison. I can't remember, but it's the one where uh, it's, it's in the Hudlin run. There's this dude who kind of had a crush on her who she sort of had a little flirtatious thing with, right? But like I thought, Shuri, Shuri seems to like being, you know, queen. Like she likes running, running shit. Yeah, right? you know, to child. I mean, I'm, I'm only, you know, putting the love interest <laughs> thing out to say that when you combine it with everything else, it's like, I mean, dude, like you have the power to change that, though. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? To the extent that you're going to change it, it has to. I think, like, even though it's your theory, it needs to be rooted in what's going on or, or, or in the past. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't want to just come in and invent a new T'Challa, you know? Um, it, it's like a remix, you know what I'm saying? Like, the, the bone to the other person has to still be there. And I think one of the, you know, not-so-recognized bones of this guy is that he's ill at ease at home. Okay, so there are so many comic book stories that serve as metaphors for um, the other experience, for lack of a better word. You know, most notably Superman for the immigrant experience and X-Men for the minority experience, you know, whether that's skin color, disability or sexual orientation, etc. So do you think it's possible to make this subtext text in a way that stays true to the work and strengthens it? Or is it easier to start from scratch? I mean, sure, but I don't think like as a writer, I I, I don't know that it pays to think too much about that. Um, I, I think that that ultimately is true. You know what I mean? Some people mm-hmm. read the X-Men. I read the X-Men. I saw, oh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, right? You know, if I were, you know, LGBT, I might have read that. Obviously, I might, I might have read the X-Men and saw something else. You know, Brian Singer saw something completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you kind of leave that to the reader to do that, you know, to do that work. You might be pulling from certain stuff, but I don't want to interpret T'Challa too much for the reader, you know, and tell the reader too much, like, what, about what Wakanda mm-hmm. has to say about our world today. I'm, I hope that there's something there, you know, but I think that's like on every individual reader. Okay. Thank you. And uh, to kind of switch gears here a little bit. So um, there's a history professor, Tyler Stovall, who made a statement 
in many ways that African-Americans came to France as a sort of a privileged minority, a kind of model minority, if you will, um, a group that benefited not only from French, fa French fascination with blackness, but a French fascination about Americanness. And as you and your family are now residents of Paris, what are your thoughts as to the city being seen as a safe haven for black Americans? I mean, that's pretty much true. You know, that's, that's pretty, it is. I mean, privileged minorities about what I would call it. Um, it's very important to note that that obviously does not extend to black folks from other places in the diaspora and particularly right. not black folks, you know, from other Francophone countries. Definitely. But yeah, I could see that. Okay. I could definitely see that. You know, um, I can't say I was fleeing anything though. Okay. And the only thing I was running from was publicity for my book. I, mean, I, was, I was tired of talking about my book. That was, that was, I mean, but I, I, I wasn't, um, I, I don't know. Like when you're in a place where you know, even if they're not so racist towards you, when you know that, that somebody, you know, you know, is underneath with a foot on their neck, you mm -hmm. know, just, I, you still feel a little, you know, ill at ease. I mean, even when it's not you, you understand what I'm saying? Cause you know, it could be you, you know, in another society, it is you. Right, right. You know, um, right, you know, I, I, in the book, like I argue that um, race is the child of racism, not the father. That that you know, race actually does not exist. That race is something you do after you decide you want to do something for somebody. And like, I think like that point that you just made is very, very true. It's not like these folks look at black people, and I'm talking about over here, and say, "Ha ha, you're clearly inferior." Well, they they feel different kinds of ways. You know what I mean? They see black people from America, and they feel one way. You know, um, they see Muslims here, by the way, and they don't feel the same way as they feel towards Francophone blacks. Um, they're considerably more hostile, you know, toward, toward, towards Muslims. Right. So it's, um, I mean, so far, it's so much so that, you know, I'm beginning to think about, you know, and I haven't, you know, written this, but, you know, to almost argue that the way they think about Muslims is very much, is, you know, the way you think about a race, that it's a racist sort of thing that's happening here. And, um, I don't know. So, I mean, you, you, I don't know how much peace you can have when you know that, you know, there are other people, you know, all around you who are under siege. True indeed. True indeed. Okay. So, now, as a son of Baltimore, today marks the anniversary of the arrest of um, Freddie Gray, and mm. in seven days will be the anniversary of his untimely death. And so, what are your thoughts on the state of Black life for Baltimore? I have very, very little because I have just not spent enough time there. You know, I left Baltimore okay. when I was... 17, I okay. went back and lived there for one summer and never again lived there as an adult. So um, I am probably unqualified to answer at this point. Okay, okay, I can respect that, I respect that. Well, so then kind of speaking generally to kind of like follow up somewhat on this, what does it mean to be Black in America and Black in America? Like, of the little time that you did spend in Baltimore, like, you know, what does it mean to Black in America and Black in from Baltimore? Who has a passion, though, for seeking out and rectifying racial injustices? Well, you know, the thing I talk about in the book is, you know, it was a violent place. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just an incredibly, incredibly violent place. And um, that marked me. That's with me. That, you know, marked how I looked at the world. Um, it marked how I walked through the world. Um, I shy from isolating Baltimore in that sense, though, because I think, like, well, I guess this is in your question. I mean, I, that is an element of the broader black experience, mm -hmm. you know, in, in America, you know, that, that sort of acquaintance with, you know, violence. And I think to me, that's, that's, you know, one of the more unfortunate legacies that, that I took from there. Okay. All right. 
do you believe that social media increases accountability of law enforcement? Uh, I, I wrote that question in relation to thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement. Probably. I mean, you know, probably. You know, it's certainly better that we have all these cameras everywhere and you can get it uploaded really quickly, you know. Um, but it's not a panacea. You know, people still see what they want to see, you know. Um, oh, God, I'm blanking on his name. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, Eric Garner. You know, Eric mm-hmm. Garner was killed. He was killed on camera. You know, mm-hmm. that didn't lead to anything. You, you know what I'm saying? Um, so it's not a panacea. You know, it doesn't mean anything when, like, you're in Chicago and officials repress things, like what happened with Laquan McDonald, you know? I mean, right. doesn't matter there. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Okay. And another journalism-related question. What is your opinion on the reporting of terror attacks, both domestically and internationally? It seems the larger attacks that take place in francophone countries, like you mentioned, like Nigeria, yeah. or even in the Middle East, like in Yemen, are not reported nearly as much as the ones like in Paris and in Brussels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I feel like, um, God, this is so cynical. I guess I feel like, I mean, uh, like that's about right, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I will say is that a lot of times this stuff is reported and people don't care. You go back, I mean, this is horrible to say, but like if you go back to the New York Times, for instance, right, and you look at how the New York Times covers, you know, the kind of, you know, terror attacks you see, say, say in a Nigeria, for instance, or with Boko Haram, you know, New York Times is one of, and this is a straight mainstream media publication, but it's really one of the last publications that actually has international reporters that go out and cover this sort of stuff. It just doesn't get the same response. It just doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, and I say this having watched, you know, people pour resources you know, into places, people, you know, who are sympathetic to this type of thing that, that you're saying, people just don't care. I mean, they just, they write Nigeria off as Africa. Africa's always at war. These people have been fighting. They're savages. Who cares? You know, maybe not that harsh, but somewhere in their mind is the idea that Africa's a war zone. All of Africa, by the way. Right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so when, when something like that happens, they just say, oh, more of the same. But in their mind, Paris is a place of peace. Belgium is a place of peace. Belgium is separate from the kind of savagery that, you know, you see in, in, in a continent like Africa, despite the fact that, you know, the, the whole history of Europe is, is war, basically. You know, this kind of terrorism isn't really new. You know, Europe feeling under siege like this isn't, as, you know, new. I mean, you know, you're talking about a world war that just happened, you know, within the living memory of many people. You know, so um, I, I, I don't think people realize, like, and I didn't appreciate this, like how fragile democracy is in Europe. And, I, and I'll speak for France. France is on, on what I think it's its fifth republic. I think this is the fifth republic it's leaving, it's leaving, you know, it's in right now. What that means is they tried democracy five times <laughs> after the uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, five different times when somebody was overthrown or something else happened. Something else happened in the 20th century, obviously, you know? Um, and so it's a fragile thing, you know? And so, I mean... What that says, the kind of turmoil you see now, I mean, there's certain technological advantages of it that's new, but this place, you know, as, as, a, as a, you know, a place where, you know, terror attacks, you know, happen and, and these sort of tactics happen is not necessarily new. I think um, the threat of Islam, and that's how they see it, you understand what I'm saying? They see it as, you know, like the threat of Islam. I, I think that portion of it might be new. That idea might be new, you know, and I think that's rooted in, you know, some sort of deep-seated sense of what Europe will be when it's not quote unquote white anymore, you know? Um, but, you know, war is depressingly, you know, um, natural. You know what I mean? I shouldn't say natural. Um, common, ordinary. 
You know what I mean? So the perspective of, you know, Europe is this place of peace. I think that explains a lot of why you get more attention, you know, of a certain tire attacks than others. So it's kind of like the peace has been disrupted, whereas other places it's, it's not the very... Peace. The belief in peace. Okay. The belief yeah. in peace, you know? You even notice, like, the disparities in the reaction from social media when it comes to changing their avatars. Mm-hmm. I noticed a lot of avatar flags for for the Brussels attack, but nothing for Nigeria. I, I saw what the Nigerian flag looks like. <laughs> I don't even know what it looks like to change the flag. You know? um, and, and the sad thing is, like, I think, like, the New York Times could cover that to death, but it can't make... It's very, I'm going to say this as a right. It's very hard to make people care. Very, very hard. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your process in writing. What uh, we've already talked about is like such a revered character. What kind of research did you get into, and then how did you kind of bring him into this new era? Well, I read a ton of comic books. I mean, I was, you know, which was not hard to get me to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best research assignment in the world. I mean, you just read a ton of comics. That really is it. I mean, you you just you know and. I guess to some extent I thought about what I knew about kings in general, you know, in the, in the broader world, mm-hmm. you know, um, and monarchy in general in the broader world. I thought about that, but I, I really just read a ton of comic books. I mean, that was the big, big thing. Uh, did you get, have a favorite story of comics or a favorite arc maybe or a favorite writer of Black Panther? Yeah, I really, um, I really, really enjoyed... Well... I really respected the way, you know, uh, Christopher Priest uh, made the character respectable. Mm-hmm. That was um, I deep respect for Reginald Hudlin's attempt to, you know, and I guess successful attempt, not attempt, but the way the way Reginald Hudlin tried to write for black people. Yeah. Uh, and tried to directly address black people. I was very, very, very attracted to the kind of um, deconstruction um, I didn't call it like character analysis that I that mm-hmm. I got you know from 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 Jonathan Hickman, you know I, I thought that was the most internal that I'd seen T'Challa written, like him in dialogue with his ancestors. Yeah, you know, like I, I thought that really you know was was profound, and he has all of this conflict about what a king should do. You know what I mean? Like, what, what does it mean to actually be a king? You know, and as harsh as a lot of that stuff is, I mean, what they're speaking on. And a lot of those scenes are the facts of what kings actually do in history. You know, um, that really, really got me. You know what I mean? Because I felt like, like that, that was the moment that I felt him as a human being, you know, and not just this kind of... I mean, a lot of this has to do with myself as a kid, right? Like, my, you know, when I was a child, you know, I was very, very attracted to, to Spider-Man, you know? And I was attracted to him because, you know, it was this sort of crazy idea you could go through the world doing the right thing saving the world saving people and they would hate you for it yeah like, i was like wow that is amazing you know so the same thing with x-men you know it's like jesus this this could happen and something about that made those characters relatable to me you know um and so a, a, a conflicted t'challa like that, I guess some elements of that resonated with me in my life. When you know there are things that you must do that may not be right, or maybe or maybe you don't want to do, you know, but you have to do them anyway. You know what I think about? Here's a great example. As a kid, I grew up in West Baltimore, right? Mm-hmm. 
And <laughs> there was always this sort of adult propaganda, you know, and this was just the ambient propaganda of the world, that it was bad to fight. You should not fight. Kids shouldn't fight. Something happens. Go tell your teacher. Tell an adult. Don't fight. Don't fight. Don't fight. It became very clear pretty early that that was not the morality of West Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that just wasn't, like, the morality of my neighborhood, you know? And it wasn't even the morality of the adults in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like, I had a dad. My dad, you know, be like, listen, you go, you don't have to go fight that boy. You don't have to come home and fight me. That was my dad's morality. <laughs> that was the morality of all the parents, you know, mothers in, in my neighborhood, too. You know what I mean? And so that was like, okay, the world is saying, you know, you go to school and they tell you Martin Luther King, that's the morality. Nonviolence, turn over the cheek, right? But then you get out on the street... And you get a deal, and there's a different morality, so you're kind of, like, conflicted, right? You know what I mean? And especially I was conflicted because personally, you know, I ain't never really liked the fight. You know, I didn't want to hurt nobody, and I, I didn't want to be hurt. You know, that just wasn't what appealed to me, but the morality of the environment I was living in forced me to, like, hide aspects of myself, you know, put them away. And so, like, you see, like, a T'Challa man, and he's in this situation where to save his world, He's being told, this is, you know, during time runs out. He's being told he has to destroy another world. And Namor is telling him he has to do this. And his dad is telling him he has to, his dad is telling him he has to do this. And all these, you know, other, you know, ancestral Black Panthers are saying, listen, you, you, you got to do this, man. You, 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 you really, really have to do this. And he can't, and he ultimately can't. And there's this, you know, big, you know, sort of blowout between him and his father when, he, when he's, you know, cast out. That, like, spoke to me. You know what I mean? That, that, you know, when you have your own personal morality, your own way that you want to walk through the world, but it is not befitting of your station in the world. You know, I just thought that was really interesting. You're like a real, full human being with actual yeah. challenges. Yeah, <laughs> and, so that's what, and, and to me, like, that's, that's what T'Challa has to be. Like, you, got, you got to feel that dude. Do you understand? Like, you really need to feel this dude. Like, you need to... My hope is when, you know, this season is done, uh, when you get to that 12th issue, when you walk away, like, you, you should, you know, you should feel some type of way about that. Like, you should be haunted mm -hmm. by the story. You should, you know, go to bed thinking about it. Wake up thinking about it. Because if I, if I haven't done that, I haven't done my job. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you, you got to, and I think the only way to do that is to draw this cat out and be as human and fully developed as, 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 as possible. I think, you know, like a lot of us black comic book fans, and this is understandable, you know, we want to see this, you know, badass black dude go out and kick some ass, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's like a, a visceral thrill you get from that. You know, you guys, any of you guys read, um, oh, what's the story? See Wakanda and Die? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like, they just, Wakanda, while everybody else is having all this trouble with the scrolls, T'Challa and Storm just, and Wakanda, they just whipped ass. Like, <laughs> 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 It's thrilling to read, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you know what I mean? All these white folks over there having these problems. This is how we do it in Wakanda, bitches. <laughs> Let it be known, yes. Right, right. You know? <laughs> they send them back. It's this sign written in blood at the end. This is this is what you get when you mess with Wakanda. <laughs> it's like all in blood, you know what I mean? It's like, yes, yes. You know? Mm -hmm. And I got feel that. You know what I mean? I, I, lo I love that story. You know what I'm saying? But, like, I guess on some level, um, like, I'm thrilled by that story. But I guess I, I, I want something that troubles you a little bit. Mm. You know? Um, maybe the stories that haunt me are not 
ones that are like there's this element of comics that you have to be like it has to be like um like all of the fantasy that you would want in your life, all the things that you wish you could do to people, you go to a comic book and you want to maybe read people doing those things. Yeah. But there's there's another level that says, well, okay, that's fine. You know, you I know you want the visceral, you know, th- thrill of this. You know, I know you want, you know, experience this through somebody else. But what about like your problems? What about yourself? What about the wholeness of you, you know, being reflect, reflected and refracted in this other way, in this other medium? That's the stuff that grabs me. That's the stuff that grabs me ultimately. I, I got to find myself in the person. I just have to. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. I, I wanted to jump in. I, as you were talking about this, and I'm thinking about some of the social cultural issues that Black Panther and T'Challa has taken on in the comics. Did you ever get around to reading, and I think it was Hickman that did this, the Jungle Action comics where T'Challa takes on the KKK? I didn't, and that's, yeah, what, yeah. that's, 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 that's the early. That's, um, that might be Kirby. I can't remember who wrote those, actually. Yeah, that's a little earlier. I didn't know. I didn't. Some of that stuff is available. Some of it is not. Yeah. Uh, um, I think that is Kirby's book. I tried to read, yeah. and I, I don't know if that's the Ku Klux Klan, but I know I tried to read Kirby's book. I, I, I had trouble. I had trouble getting through that book, actually. Um, I, I'm just curious to know if that's something that we will see in the current arc of, of T'Challa, if, if we're going to take... Him fighting the Ku Klux Klan? Ku Klux Klan, or just... Or Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> will we see any sort of, you know, real elements? Again, right? You know what I mean? You want to see T'Challa kick Donald Trump's ass? I want to see it happen, please. <laughs> Probably not. I don't, I don't know if this is going to be the... I mean, there are moments of that, you know? I think um, there are characters who you should watch... Um, and there are moments like that with T'Challa, but there are other characters also who you should watch. Who there's some, uh, you know, element of that that vicarious through. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a Wakanda story. Mm. This is Wakanda story. I don't even know why I decided to do that, but for some reason I just decided to to, to focus on Wakanda. This is about. See what I want is when the next writer comes along when I'm done to have like a really rich history and culture to to, to pull from. Um, I really want to develop Wakanda as an actual place yeah. and not just this sort of mystical, magical utopia. Yeah, that's long overdue. So. You're laying the groundwork. You're laying the groundwork. Yeah. So. I hope so. I hope so. I'm building on other people too, though. You know what I mean? Like there's some, a great deal of that was already there. I just, I just want to, you know, solidify the sort of thing that, you know, Priest, Hudlin, you know, Hickman, all these guys, Kirby, you know, um, McGregor, all these guys that came before that. that, that they McGregor. Were. That's who it was. I've heard several arguments on convention floors and in Twitter feeds stating it's ridiculous for creators of color to want to work for the big two who have notoriously treated characters and creators of color as less. Now, obviously, you're writing for Marvel and working with a character who is literally a symbol for Black Pride. Why is Black Panther still important and relevant and have the big two learned from their past mistakes? I don't know. I can't, I can't answer any of that. I mean, but that's like... I mean, by that argument, no women should work for Marvel either. Like, right. you know, like we should continue to allow Marvel and DC. Like, it should just be white dudes. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that basically is the argument that's being made. Because if anybody gets it bad in comic books, I mean, it's, it's women. You know, uh, like, really, really, really Yeah. yeah. Mm. When they um, use vernacular, like, it's solid in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it's um, it's pretty bad. And I can't say that I always saw it that way. You know what I mean? I was I was pretty much blind to it as, as a young reader. But it, it runs, you know, it's clearly a very 
a field that, you know, uh, you know, um, has a strong element of young male culture, you know, you know, in there and is not always, you know, what, what it should be, you know, and I, and I had to think about that, you know, even with T'Challa, you know, um, we had, um, for instance, one of the things I inherited was the Dora Milasha. Mm. And, um, like, you know, when you first see the Dora, Dora Malashe, you know, um, in, in, in their earliest incarnations, I mean, you're talking about literally 16-year-old, like, wives in waiting for this dude who only speak to him and don't speak to anybody else in this secret language. Right. And it's like, right. oh, okay, okay. And even in later renditions, I mean, you, you, you know, you have these women who will give their lives for this dude who address him as beloved. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. You know, um, I don't want to get, you know, you don't really want to burn down, the, you know, the house, but <clears throat> how about we try to get inside of those women? Let's, how about we try to, you know, figure out what they're thinking in their heads, you know, not in relation to him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank so, you. All of that. <laughs> all that, you know, and that's, that to me, you know, that's, I mean, you can say like an element of that is political, but also it's just like storytelling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like actually it's not political, it's just storytelling. You know what I mean? You try to, develop characters, you know? Um, when, um, you know, Wiener, when he went to do, when Matthew Wiener went, goes to do, like, Mad Men, right? Like, okay, so Don is the protagonist of that story. There's no question about that, right? Mm-hmm. But he's got to develop Peggy. He's got to, you know what I mean? Like, he has to develop Peggy as a fully independent human being. He's got to develop Joan as a fully independent human being, even though Don is, is the protagonist. You know, so it's the same thing here. You know, T'Challa's the protagonist, right? This is your star. But you can't have the women around just be ornaments. That's just not how it works. And so I I, I don't know. I mean, I I can't really speak to what Marvel and DC, whether they have learned their lesson or not. I'm happy to be here. And, you know, my job is to, you know, really give give a, a book that's full of human beings. That's my job. Thank you so much for that. (laughs) Much appreciated. So for this specific story arc with T'Challa, did you come up with the story on your own or were you given a story template to work off of? And is this story tying into T'Challa's current adventures in the Ultimates, which is awesome, by the way? Yeah, I love the Ultimates. I was doing a great job. No, I wasn't given anything. This is all me. Um, I mean, along with Brian and obviously with, with Laura, you know, and folks, this is all us. I guess that's what I should say. Um, and... I don't want to say too much about whether it's tied into the events with the Ultimates, but um, I'll just say, like, this was, we were not, I was not given the template. Awesome. No wonder it's so good, Bursa. <laughs> right. <laughs> you did real good without a template, so. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, my follow-up question is, uh, what are your thoughts on the renewed pro- pro-Black movement and kind of ties into the other questions I asked about Black Lives Matter. It's been tagged as the new Selma. I mean, how do you think that the this revitalization of Black Panther plays into that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's a great question, though. It's like, you know, you know, um, well, here's what I will say. I think, obviously, you know, um, as a writer, you know, what, what um, you know, I think I would have wrote between the world and me regardless, right? But I think that the fact of, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter made that book a lot more relevant. You know, discussion was already there, you know? So I don't I don't think the book would have been anywhere near as big without that. Um, and that, you know, then, you know, brought, you know, um, that then brought my work to the attention of Marvel. 
You know, so there's that kind of indirect link right there, you know. Um, but it's tough. It's tough beyond that. You know, like they're, they're in, in the world of activism and, you know, I'm in the world of writing. It's not that there's anything wrong with one or the other, but it's just, it's just two different disciplines. Absolutely. Um, in your first issue of Black Panther, you really well rep women hard. Ayo, Anika, the Queen are all prominent figures. Um, and even though we're getting narration from uh, T'Challa, these women are kind of shaping the story early on. Uh, they even take men to task for not stepping up and protecting their women. What made you want to start your story from this perspective? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I just got color pages from Laura Mark. So <laughs> <laughs> no she problem. Is, she's, she's the colors on these, on this, in this, in this shit, man. She is killer. Beautiful. It's so beautiful. beautiful. Yes. Like lush and, you know what I mean? And just, gosh, she got the colors. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Can you ask me again? Sorry. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, I just wanted to know, uh, you have, just stocked the book full in the first issue of powerful women, like taking men to task for not protecting uh, their own women. And I was wondering what made you want to start from this perspective? Hmm. Well, so a lot of it was actually organic. Okay. Because much of uh, a lot of the men around T'Challa were dead. You know, his uncle Siam was dead. Um, Zuri was dead. Wakabi was dead. Uh, Mbaku, you know, who's kind of, you know, arch enemy sort of was dead. Um, so there wasn't like, there was like a, there, and then the people who remained, you know, it was Ramonda who was still around. Anika, who I did not invent, who, you know, was kind of around, who was one of the captain of the Dora Malache. Um, it was not clear what had happened to, to, to Shuri. Um, and so I guess like I, I began with, you know, like in my earliest tweets, they said, who are you excited about writing? I said, Ramonda. Because it just seemed to me like that there was already some, you know, an interesting relationship there. Here's a woman who was not his birth mother, but who he considers his mother. All right. So you start there, right? Mm -hmm. And then you start building out on the institutions. And, you know, well, the Dora Malashe are one of the most consistent elements in the, the modern interpretation of the Black Panther. So they're there. All right. So now, I, you know, I, like that's just what the story is, right? I got, you know, a strong woman who is his mother who's there and is part of, you know, what he does. And then I have this institution, which is, you know, women only. That's right there. So it wasn't even much of a conscious decision. You know, I, 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 you know, I got to be straight with you. If this was a different book, I don't know that it would have worked out the same way. Okay. You know, um, but th those were the things that were there. And then, you know, you have to make a decision. And, you know, my decision was, you know, as I was saying earlier, to make sure these folks were fully developed as human beings. You know, and so I had to try to get into, you know, Anika's head and Ayo's head and think, okay, here you are. You decide to give your life in service to this dude. This dude's biggest job, his most important job, is to protect his country. Um, that has been unsuccessful. That's been unsuccessful. You know, um, you have had, you know, Moreland, who's coming there and just cut a swath through the country. You've had the country flooded by Namor. You've had it leveled by the Black Order. You've had it infiltrated uh, by Dr. Doom. Um, you had, you know, an almost successful coup by Dr. Doom. So, you know what I mean? Wakanda's population has been severely reduced. I mean, this is massive trauma. So, like, my assumption is that when that sort of level of societal trauma happens, institutions are wounded. People, you know, can then begin to question, you know, like, the, the very rules that govern their lives. You know? Um, I think that's what happened with Io and Anika. That's what I think happened. You know? Um... I don't know that they would have been in that same relationship if, you know, 
the, the events of the past few years of Wakanda hadn't have happened. You know, I think, um, you know, there was a, um, a sense that I can now think of my own personal priorities. And I don't even mean like their relationship. You know, I mean, like, listen, you know, I, I'm seeing that, that, you know, this village over here, you know, and this is happening and nobody's stopping them. You know what I mean? Nobody's, you know, speaking up about this. You know, well, normally I might would just, you know, look the other way or maybe not look the other way, but go through the appropriate channels, but the appropriate channels have broken down. So now I got to go for self and take it, in, in, you know, in, in my own hands. So it was a story. It was a story, really. Um, I had a quick follow-up question. Um, earlier you were saying that you had trouble with Kirby's Black Panther. Uh, why? What happened? I just remember it being hard to read. Which is, I just found it really <laughs> hard to read. Um, you know, I was like, he has this device, Solomon's frogs, and the panther is using frogs. And like, I guess like there's something to this, but I just, I'm trying hard, although I haven't been, I don't think I've been totally successful. I was trying to, hard to avoid animals. Like, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of animals. You know what I mean? Just animals everywhere. And it's like, all right, that's cool, but we got the panther for one. You know what I mean? Now let's try to think about other things. This is supposed to be the most advanced civilization on the planet Earth. Right. Right. You know? So, I mean, I got it. It's not that I don't think animals shouldn't play a role, but that shouldn't be the most, you know, dominant thing. I just remember being hard to read, man. <laughs> it's been months. This was like months ago. This was like, I mean, Marvel, they didn't announce in September, but I think we started talking back in June. It was before the book came out. So, and that was when I started my research. By the time Marvel announced it, I think I had my first script in. Wow. wow. Did you watch the animated series on BET by Hudlin? I did. I didn't. I know it, but I did. No. Just you guys like it? You guys fans? I liked it. A, liked a it. lot of a lot of folks didn't because they say they didn't like the animation. Um, but uh-huh. I thought it was a very great series. And uh, some of the actors are some of the most popular actors of our time that did the voices. Jaiman Hunsu, Kerry Washington. Uh-huh. It was a great series when it ran. Okay. All right. I'll check it out. Yeah. I have one more question, but before I um, get to that, I just wanted to say that um, you spoke earlier about finding yourself within characters and, you know, taking what you want from a book. And when I read the first issue, it just, it hit me hard that this is about leadership being hard, being hard for him. And he's discovering this, you know, in this issue that you can try. Yeah. And it means, and none of it comes to anything in the end you're like oh, i've worked so hard for you yeah <sighs> it's hard but you yeah you're a good person and a noble person and doesn't matter yeah your intentions they can mean nothing <laughs> right yeah but my question is um you spoke about writing for a comic book being um a backwards process you know in the sense that you have to visually set up the scene before you can write it so now that you've gained some um experience in doing it do you see yourself writing on other marvel properties in the future or even you know putting out your own original work through image i don't know i don't know i was thinking about that today i don't i don't know you sold over three hundred thousand copies <laughs> something to consider I mean, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah but it's black panther you know what i mean it's not it's not mine you know you're so humble you are so no, humble, but i know lots I'm of people not humble. That's, I mean, it's an established property you know what i mean there's a movie coming out he's gonna be in adventures this summer Right? I mean, no, those are, Hattie, I have to tell you, I was just at my local comic book store and they said they had so many new people coming in looking just for this book. Just yeah, for this just book. because of you being attached to it. Or because the movie is coming. <laughs> no, no one's seen Black Panther in action. 
reaction yet. They don't know what to expect. <laughs> you guys get right. a little credit. <laughs> I wish that was. If that's true, that would be awesome. I would well, I picked it up because you were writing it, so I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Grace, did you have a? Yeah. Um, so a professor um, came out with a documentary. Jonathan Gales came out with a documentary called White Scripts and Black Superman, looking at black black masculinities in comic books, and so. He includes Black um, Panther in there and other Black male characters. So with your take on with the new um, comic, um, Black Panther comic or kind of like remix, as you said, does it critique, enhance, or maybe even provide an additional face to Black masculinity in 2016? Mm. What do you think? I mean, so far, I think so. I think, you know, like Black masculinity has always been like very monolithic. And like you're beginning to kind of like insert layers into, you know, black masculinity that it's it's not the same. So from what I've read just in this first issue, yes. So, you know, yeah. I, I look forward to, you know, the rest to see how it fully develops, you know. Yeah, we gotta talk after issue twelve. I'm 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 interested in that. I I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, all I can tell you is I just wanted him to be fully developed. You know, I didn't want him to be shaft. You know, right. Or um right. I don't know. Um, Some black exploitation figure. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't want him to be that, and I also didn't want him to be back of Vance. You know, I just, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. That's a. That's a. <laughs> I have thought about that. Interesting one. dichotomy right there. <laughs> yeah. This is Wakanda. This is ours. You understand what I'm saying? This is yeah. ours. This is us right here. This is. I mean, that's. It is. You know, I was powerfully influenced as a young person by Zora Neale Hurston, right? Because Zora wrote like white people didn't exist um and so her fiction struck me as like some of the blackest blackest shit i had ever read you know she caught hell from you know a lot of other writers during that period because it was felt that she didn't take on politics she didn't denounce white racism in her work she didn't do this she did that. but all she did was write about the culture of black people in the black world right. yeah it was just right. us it wasn't and i always thought like that was the most powerful thing right to not allow them to control the conversation, to not, you know, allow that in, to write about our world independent of their world. And, and I guess, you know, I had, and this was not intentional, but, you know, when you said in Wakanda, this is what's going to happen. This is black folks. This is us right here. This is black folks. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I try to, even in designing the world and <clears throat> pulling things together, I'm really, you know, trying to pull from different, you know, sort of diasporic traditions. Um, this is our mythology, you know? Um, that obviously doesn't mean other people, you know, shouldn't read it, you know, can't read it. Obviously, they should. It's written, you know, it's for Marvel. But this is coming out of the Black experience for me. That, that, that's where I'm pulling from. I, I don't want to be in reaction to things that, you know, to the way that white people have written Black content. Because you're still caught up in the trap then. You understand what I'm saying? You're trying to undo some shit that they did. Right. You know, I'm trying my best to write free. But you 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 on the right you on the right foot so you know you the trying you did so like I, said, I mean with the, with this just this first issue and we just talking about one issue I mean I'm I've literally read it like twenty times because I'm just like you know let me see what else I'm gonna find let me see what else I'm gonna get so like yeah I mean you 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 doing it you did it you know well thank you I hope you guys enjoy the rest of it I really do it, it resonates with us so well what you just mm-hmm. said that Wakanda's world is our world. 
Yeah. Uh, so thank you for that, Tanahasi. Thank you so much for coming on. And if you don't mind, can you just give us your social media shout outs and let us know where we can find you on the interwebs? Uh, you mean like, 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 like uh, what social media I follow or what? Your uh, your social media well, my, account. Well, my, yeah, my, you. <laughs> that, not who you follow. You. <laughs> I thought I was going to give a shout out to somebody else. Um, that's just Tanahasi Coates on Twitter. That's it. And I write for the Atlantic. I'm a you know I'm the national correspondent for the Atlantic. Um, it's a job that I love. They have you know very you know um, generously you know allowed me to go and pursue things to my heart's desire, including things like this. So those are the two places to find me. Thank you so, so much. Black Girl Nerds Podcast will return right after this brief message. out on patreon go to patreon.com forward slash black girl nerds patreon allows you the fan and follower of black girl nerds to support us the content creators that includes supporting us by way of our podcast our website and helping us build and develop this online community as we travel throughout the country and cover several conventions and press events also as we have equipment to be able to support those events and as we have staff of people who take time out of their busy schedules to work for BGN, we ask you, the Patreon, to help support that. So check us out at patreon.com forward slash blackgirlnerds, and we ask you to give your monthly support for BGN. And depending on your pledge level, you get some really great perks out of it. So check us out again at patreon.com forward slash blackgirlnerds and support us today. And thank you. Back to the show. Matthew Cherry is a former NFL wide receiver turned filmmaker who has played for the Jacksonville Jaguars, Cincinnati Bengals, Carolina Panthers, and the Baltimore Ravens. In 2007, he retired and moved to LA to pursue a career in the entertainment industry, landing work as a production assistant. He has then worked on several music videos and short films. His most recent film is Nine Rides that premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Nine Rides is a film about an Uber driver who gets life-changing news on the busiest night of the year. How are you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm good. I'm thinking, glad you joined us this yeah, morning. Glad you uh, invited us out. Hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give our uh, listeners a little uh, like elevator pitch about Nine Rides? Yeah, you know, Nine Rides is uh, the first feature shot on an iPhone success. It's about a uh, Uber driver who gets this kind of life-changing news on New Year's Eve and these nine different groups of people who he interacts with.
works with that kind of influences decision. So, you know, it's kind of a uh, dissection of the uh, how fragile the male ego is. <laughs> so. That it is. <laughs> What propelled you to use the iPhone 6 to shoot on? Well, um, a, a few things. Um, it, it recently came out. Like, literally, the day it came out, my producer, Jerome, was, like, at the Apple store, like, bought it the day it came out. We knew that the new phone was going to shoot in 4K. I remember five years ago, I shot a short film called This Time with Reagan Gomez, and uh, we were shot in Atlanta. We were literally just scrambling around Atlanta trying to find a red camera because that was, like, the first camera to shot on 4K. Mm. And it was just such a huge deal at the time, and it was just so expensive. And so I'm like, man, you know, here, here we are five years later, and now you can do this same thing on, on your phone. And so um, I just really wanted to kind of be one of the first people to shoot with it, really more so because I am a filmmaker of color, and I know how hard it is to get access to good equipment and just really to kind of just, like, test it and be like, look, this, this can work. It's viable. You can shoot a feature film with name talent, get in a major fest like a South by, and, uh, you know, just hopefully inspire others to, uh, you know, don't think that it's so hard to my biggest thing when I started was I always thought that filmmaking was like this multi-million dollar thing like it was it had to be action sequences in the rock you know from Chicago I <laughs> wasn't like a film student you know what I mean I, I, I just watched it on the surface level like a lot of people but then uh, when I you know started learning about film and um, you know I just thought I quickly learned how accessible it could be and but I still realize that a lot of people on the outside looking in, it looks like it's not as accessible. And so just trying to help push it forward and hopefully, you know, young people can be inspired, to, you know, shoot, shoot with their phone in their pocket. <laughs> Absolutely. So I know you wrote, directed and edited this yeah. film. And I was so impressed with like everything. But the writing was so superb. You cover so many groups of people, different kinds of people, and then for so many of them to be black and like, like so unapologetically black <laughs> was so awesome <laughs> and beautiful. And you shot in LA where you could have, you know, if you had chosen to do like a lot of different races and groups, it was a really diverse area, but you stuck with a lot of black folks, which I really appreciated. <laughs> what was your thinking about that? Still kind of aimed at like, you know, I want to show you that we can be on film and yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, I, I'm a black filmmaker, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, a lot of my circle, you know, obviously I, I roll with a lot of, um, you know, talented people such as Dorian, Robin Lee, who I've worked with before in music videos. And so, yeah, it's like America is what we, you know, we, we project how we want to perceive it, you know what I mean? So that's why I don't understand when you see these old school movies in the 50s that don't have black people in them, like, <laughs> as if we were invented in the 60s. Or, you know, what I'm saying? you know, like, even in the 90s, where right. you're walking around New York and right. it's white people everywhere. It's like, right. Eh, okay. Right, you know what I mean? Like, diversity, it, it exists in natural ways. I mean, I've been, you know, I ride Uber a lot. Like, I don't drive in LA, and so, you know, I've had eight or nine black drivers in a row. Mm -hmm. And so it's definitely a thing that can happen, and so it's like, you know, if I'm a filmmaker of color, why not show you know a uh, a more inclusive world the world you live in exactly. yes yes what was it like seeing your movie screened yesterday for the yeah. first time here to hear to a sold out audience yeah. congratulations yeah. what was it like sitting down watching your movie with a big audience strangers for the first time um, i mean it's always nerve-wracking because uh and, and we're all technical people so you know there were some things because we literally shot at the week of thanksgiving like we were just it was a constant scramble just to even get it turned in on time and so, uh, you know, there were some technical things that I was kind of cringing at, but, <laughs> you know, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta get over it because, you know, at the end of the day, the story is there, you know, the, um, you know, the actors are great and, uh, it played really well. Cool. I'm really excited about it. So did you gorilla shoot the whole film? Yeah. Man. And you said in a week? Uh, six days with two pickup days. What was that experience like? 
I mean, it, it was cool. I mean, because every project is different. So that one, it all taking place in the car. It really, we approached it really like a play. But and because we had iPhones, and so what we did was typically in a in a, in a movie like this, you would, you would cover it kind of like a couple lines at a time. You know, okay, now we're gonna reverse the camera. But because we were shooting on iPhones, mostly in the car, we for the most part we set up two cameras for the mo when we could go, and so it was literally we set the cameras up on the hood of the car or in the car or whatever. Dorian would literally start at the starting point, pull up, pick up the rider, and they would drive for five, ten minutes, however long it took them to get to the real destination. So it all every time we went. It played like a real Uber ride in terms of timing and length and everything. And so, you know, and so we would do it. We had like six hours block to do shoot each scene. And we would take an hour or two before each scene just to kind of like really dissect, find the truth in each scene because we did it with no script and it was mostly improv. Wow, um, I had no idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, was all, it was all improv. That actually did, explains uh, the scene with the kids because that was on point. <laughs> 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 I know those kids. <laughs> we, we all do. I've, I've ridden in a, in a pool earlier today. <laughs> we, we rode in a crazy pool. So, yeah, it happens. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So, I know you were an NFL player before. How did you get into film? Well, it was my major in uh, college, uh, radio, okay. TV, broadcast. So, uh, that I had a double major, radio, TV, broadcast, and a minor in marketing. Did and, you go to Columbia? Uh, no, uh, University of Akron, okay. in Ohio. <laughs> All right. You said you were from Chicago. Yeah. I'm also from Chicago. Okay. I did go to Columbia, and oh, nice. I was like, it could be a Columbia. I see she it. probably know Lena then. She went there too. Lena? I don't know. Maybe maybe before you or after. Chicago. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. Sorry, your, your lead actor, Dorian Missick, is yep. that how you say his name? Mm -hmm. So great. So yeah. like, just, please follow. I know some of our viewers might know him from... Was it Joe Ever After? Zoe, Zoe After After. <laughs> I can read my handwriting. That's good. <laughs> it was like kind of a, um, I was like a Dave Chappelle vibe to him. Not in so much comedy, but in that like sharp eye and quick to smile and very like warm and affectionate. You want to get to know him mm. right away. I know you just said that you worked with him on a music video mm -hmm. before. What made him perfect for this? I think the thing that made Dorian perfect was that, um, you know, he's a classically trained actor, you know, uh, comes from theater, comes from, uh, you know, Broadway, off-Broadway, and it's just just a great guy, you know what I mean? He's a guy that you want to be on set with for 12 hours, starting at <laughs> 6 p.m. call time and rapping at 6 in the morning, you know, he's he's a guy that you want to just be around, and um, in my talking with him, you know, he's like literally gone through every level of these relationships from the scene with Robin, you know, having to kind of break up with somebody who wasn't, wasn't even aware he was in a relationship with somebody else. You know, like, he kind of played through a lot of these situations in his past, not currently. Um, <laughs> as a lot of us have, you know, and um, he, he just related to the material, and it, it just seemed very organic, and, uh, you know, it was just a great experience. Awesome. Um, the cop scene was so, like, I was getting emotional just watching it. It was... It's just so intense. What was it like? You didn't write a script. How did you kind of go about scripting that? And, and what was it like to, to write it and or shoot it? Yeah. Um, well, everything, I mean, so not scripted doesn't mean that there wasn't, like, there wasn't a clear through line with the story. And so each scene had uh, very thought out beats. And, and I actually even wrote out the theme and what we were trying to accomplish with Dorian's character in each scene. So, like, in that cop scene, it was really... Well, not the cop scene, but I guess cop slash uh, the, the the kind of drunk college kids. It was more about showing that Dorian isn't he's he's not easy to forgive, mm -hmm. and that this is kind of where we need to get him to the end of the movie to see if he's uh, if his level of forgiveness actually you know gets better 
by his experiences kind of going through the movie. And so, um, you know, the whole cop scene, it was just, it was really just a matter of, because the actors are just so great, like Brittany C. Richards, who was in the front seat, Capri, Mahuna, I'm trying to remember the, uh, Dominic, uh, Jake. Yeah, and then, uh, and then Jake, you know, they were all just so good and organic and, you know, just like the dialogue was just so awful. They were dabbing in the car and just doing all kind of stuff. That, uh... <laughs> that was hilarious. I almost died. <laughs> they hit the dab. I was like, no. <laughs> but, 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 but it was just, you know, to me, it was just more of a matter of just like kind of um, kind of bringing your natural self to the character, but doing it within this framework of the scene and just, uh, you know, hopefully just trust that I won't have you looking crazy. Mm. And if you do do something that, that doesn't work, I'm not going to include it in the edit. You know, right. I'm going to try to edit it in a way to where, you know, it makes sense narratively, so. That's awesome. I know it's so important for actors to be able to trust their director right. and have the relationship when you only have six days instead of, like, three months right. to establish it. It's really impressive. The other thing I was really impressed by is you really captured the beauty of L.A., which I think is so hard for a lot of filmmakers to do. You've got, you know, like, Mulholland Drive does a nice job. You've got these kind of classic <laughs> examples, right. but I really like the way you shot it. Was, did it feel like a second character to you? Or yeah. were you just kind of, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we literally were all around L.A. from downtown to Hollywood to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, LAX. You know, it was hard, too, because a lot of it we weren't able to... The way we shot it, we tried to shoot it very intimately, so you kind of felt like as if you were in the car as well. But uh, through the reflections, was yeah. a, was, it was a big way we were able to kind of really show Case the City and uh, definitely think character. It was sure. gorgeous. I also really like, you have this one shot like right outside of the driver's window and I have no idea how you got it. Did you, did you guys use like a traditional camera mount for that or did you guys have to create any kind of like gear for it? No, um, again, um, because we shot on the iPhones and this I think is the biggest thing that allowed us that freedom when we shot with the phones was that if we shot with like a regular camera like an Alexis or even that camera right there, for the most part, we would have probably had to have had like a process trailer mm -hmm. and, you know, had it on a tripod or, you know, so they have, they use it all the time in movies, but the angles we were able to get like down below by the wheel, uh, on the tail light, we did it all with suction cups, like $60 suction no. cups we found on Amazon. <laughs> I have no excuse not to make movies anymore. Yeah. Suction cups. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our DP, so yeah, our DP, uh, Richard VLA, he, um, you know, we just, we, he, he, he's great. He shot, oh my God, he's like barely 30. He shot maybe like almost 30 films, like <laughs> literally um, all kind of levels. And he's working with Tyler Perry right now um, in Atlanta. But That's he, awesome. Yeah, but he's, he's just a beast. And he, um, you know, how, we many, just, how many phones did you lose with the suction cups? No. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> did, no, did, did, no did, did, didn't fall off the car not one time. I mean, we, we, you know, tied it together with strings and, you know, kind of tied them together. So if one fell off, hopefully the other one would catch it. But uh, none of them ever fell off. Literally, it was probably like these higher-end suction cups you find on Amazon, and they uh, were, were great. That's in so <laughs> ingenious and inventive. I really like that. I don't want to give them anything away in the story, but there's a prayer that said mm -hmm. in the movie, and just resonated so much. Was that also improv? Yeah, did you guys, everything was improv. Did, okay, how did you... <laughs> I'm curious how you kind of coached him through that. He was just so emotional and... I didn't want to say emotional. Like I was, it's just it was raw. Like right. it was real. Like I felt that. Like right. it's, it's beautiful. It, it was just. I think we've all been there. Like you know, you're you're kind of at a low point in your life, and you're just you know, New Year's. I, I think that's what's symbolic of New Year's. You know, it, it symbolizes a new beginning. And so, this character, to me, I told Dorian, I was like, through this prayer, we need to get a feel of this guy's entire kind of summation of his life. You know. 
maybe he's done some messed up things in the past. Maybe he's uh, trying to do better. You know, it's just literally just you're at a transitional point in your life. And now because you know that the situation might be going on with your fiance and you don't know what's really going on and your mind is literally racing, you just have to really express how after midnight you really want just things to be better. You, you want to be a better man. And so he was able to just pull internally from, you know, some some situations. and uh, But he, he, was, he was incredible. It was wonderful to we watch. We literally went, like, when he was breaking down, we literally had the camera on for, like, 10 minutes because it just was, like, a gradual buildup. And I almost cut a couple times, but he, he just kept seeming like he was trying to, I don't know what he was thinking about, but... You had to let him go. And he, and, and, and thing, I have to say this, Dorian is so prepared. So so this notebook you're holding right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this notebook. <laughs> so <laughs> Dorian had a similar notebook and literally... He came to set, and it was probably three-fourths full with just notes and backstory and ideas and just thoughts and things. And so that's things, too, that allow just, you know, it may seem like, oh, man, this dude is dope. He just, you know, was able to direct them. But a lot of the actors brought a lot to the table as well. And, and he did a lot of homework, too, which which is also I encourage a lot of actors to do. You know, yeah, come to set, you know, and expect to be directed, but also do the homework so that we both can make the job easier. So. The teamwork is, is evident. It yeah. shows, and it's a great film. I have one last question for you. Did you always have that ending involved? I had to go back and watch. I had a screener, <laughs> and I had to watch it a second time, and I was like, I literally screamed niggas ain't shit. No! No! I'm so upset. And yet it was the perfect ending. Like, it, it brought everything full circle. Everything, like, completely <laughs> fell into place with it. Was that always the ending you had in mind? Yeah, I mean, that was the genesis of the story. It was, um, it was, it was kind of based off of this Chris Rock joke where he said, um, you know, you're, you're cheating on your woman and now you don't trust her. <laughs> and, and that literally was kind of like where the, the movie was kind of born from. So if you have this guy who's being unfaithful and he, he, he didn't see a text message, he didn't catch her in bed with anybody, he didn't physically see her out with anybody, but the mere thought that she might be out here with somebody else just threw his mind into a, into a craze. And it just kind of, to me, it shows how, you know, a lot of guys, we can dish it but can we take it you know what I mean and we he can't you know the way he was reacting breaking down in the car and just you know yeah it, it, it always was in there you know to kind of and and it really wasn't a twist it was just the way it was presented yeah. Make, makes it come across like a twist because you don't have the full information it's not revealed but but I'll, I'll give you a non-spoiler uh answer um no no the, the, the ending was always like that you know it's just uh again I think it was just really more breaking down how fragile you know the male ego is and just you know the irony of you know relationships and but you know at the end of the day though they both were complicated because you know they both were to me at the end they both weren't fully truthful you know we try to present it in a way to where hopefully people would, would see both sides of the conversation and but now that they have this new situation happening you know hopefully they'll move forward and you know be better people Awesome. Thank you so much for joining no, us today. You. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? I know you're all over social media. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, you know, Matthew A. Cherry is uh, a lot of the handles. Twitter. Oh, my God. I'm about to sound crazy saying all these things. So Twitter, Periscope, <laughs> Snapchat. Yeah, Instagram. Yeah, pretty much on all of them at Matthew A. Cherry. You can find me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too hard to find. Go Matthew. <laughs> He's an amazing filmmaker. Oh, I can't wait to see what you do next. I like so much more than I thought I would. I love this film. Oh, thank you. It was so Appreciate fun. It. Thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me.
In our final segment, Jacqueline sits down with Paul Rubens of Pee Wee Herman fame and Joe Manganiello of True Blood fame. Pee Wee's Big Holiday is an adventure comedy film directed by John Lee and co-written by Paul Rubens and Paul Rust. The film debuted on Netflix, which is a Netflix original film, on March 18th and debuted at South by Southwest. So congratulations on the film. Thank um, you. Did everybody here see the film? Yes. 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 Twice, yeah, actually, for me. I watched it again this morning on Netflix. Oh, I haven't watched it on Netflix yet. I'm um, excited to do that. Yeah, yeah, last night I saw it at the fan screening, and that's what I was just going to tell you. Um, obviously, seeing it with the audience last night, what were you most surprised that they laughed at or maybe that, that you were like they were most happy to see? Because we had people clapping in my fan screening we, well I mean people laughed at, we all said this John Lee and Paul Rust and I after the first screening last night were saying it was just so gratifying to hear people laugh at all the places we hoped people would laugh at mm-hmm. so there were there were other places uh, I there's my biggest surprise was something that I feel is like too spoilery to bring up like okay uh, but, <laughs> probably but, but, but I thought there was stuff in the backyard scene with Joe where like people laughed at the beginning a couple of things that happened at the beginning and then missed a few things they laughed over uh, a couple of like lines that, that one one of which is one of my favorite lines in the movie but which you know that like? you could have worse problems laughing so hard they couldn't hear right. like the next line right yeah well, I guess that that's a good problem to have then. Exactly. Um, yeah. I guess my next question is, what was it like working, you've worked with other writer collaborators, what was it like working with Josh Russ for this one? Um, and Paul maybe Russ. Uh, Paul Russ, sorry, sorry, John. What was it like working with him for this one and collaborating with somebody new for a PBO oh, movie? Oh, fantastic. I mean, I, uh, I love Paul Russ. He's like hilarious. He's young. He's, he's a young person who has this huge film vocabulary and knows everything about movies and comedy and uh it was fantastic we, we really enjoyed working with each other for five years long 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 time. no that's great you look like you're sitting on the toilet that's an old martin short game <laughs> my last <laughs> question i guess is um how is balancing the adults that are now watching the film with you now knowing that you're going to be introducing this to kids and making it to where you cater to kind of two audiences at the same time how is that balancing act we've always done that that's sort of always been my thing mm-hmm. it's fun it's like it's it's not that much of a challenge really i mean if you're leaving certain things out if you're leaving sort of you know dirty stuff or i mean you know there's just a few things like i'm not that interested in anyway and so if you pull some of that stuff out, then it appeals to everybody. Or hopefully it does. It did. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so first of all, congratulations on the film. Also, congratulations on getting married. Oh, so that's nice. awesome. It's still within the year. It is awesome. yeah. yeah. They say congratulations to the man, but they don't say that to the woman. It's Did like, you ever notice that? Yeah. It's like good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, like, no one's <laughs> I don't know what to say after that, I guess. I guess my first question for you is, when you got offered this role and you knew, essentially, that it's kind of for you, how was it feeling that you are going to be playing a version of, you well, know? Well, when I was offered the movie, 
I was playing a character, a famous actor named Joe Mancuso, <laughs> okay. uh, who had a bunch of movies that he had starred in. One of them was um, a movie called Monster Snake. You, know, <laughs> you don't know who I am? I'm right. Joe Mancuso. Right? <laughs> Monster Snake? No. You know, and then there were all these other movies that, that I had been in. And I actually have a poster. They made it. They went ahead and made a poster of a monster snake, <laughs> but I think it's in my penthouse, yeah. in the movie somewhere. So, so, so that's 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 what that's what the character was. But you know, Paul and, and John and I were having conversations uh, about you know Paul and John kind of concocted this idea like, what if what if when you say your name you're, you're you? <laughs> and so on the day of, I did a take that way that wasn't scripted. And so, you know, True Blood and Magic Mike and, and rolled with it, and that's what wound up in the movie. Uh, so was his response ad lib? Because my favorite line in the whole movie is him responding and going, uh, you'd think I'd know Magic Mike, but <laughs> Which I didn't catch. I've seen it a couple of times. I didn't catch it until last night. It was like, oh, my God. That was so funny. Yeah, no, I completely ad lib. Yeah. Yeah, that, that wasn't written. Wow. <laughs> Were you saying more? <laughs> Well, you know, what's interesting is that, that, to me, was that because I wasn't just playing a character who meets Pee-wee on the way, or an adult who meets Pee-wee on the way, the fact that my character was going to wind up his best friend, that took some thinking and figuring out. Because when Pee-wee falls in the well, the Chiron says... Boy trapped in well, a boy, which gets a laugh in the movie, you know, not man trapped in well. So when you think of it that way, you kind of reverse engineer, you think, well, if I'm his best friend, I have to be a boy also in ways. And I'm riding a motorcycle around and being this cool tuxedo wearing guy. But when he doesn't show up to my party, I have to be upset in a way that like a 10-year-old would be upset that his friend didn't come to his party. And so to me, that was really like the Rosetta Stone to understanding the character, you know, which isn't me, but that's how this, that's how it has to work in this, this odd universe. And so when, you know, at eight years old or whatever I was, when my dad brought me to see Big Adventure, for Somehow it just struck some kind of chord in me, and that was also my introduction to Tim Burton. And Tim Burton for me. Oh, like, I love him too. He's my favorite director. That was it? <laughs> like you know, all I just, I dreamed. I mean, the, the, the Batman movies, Beetlejuice. My God, the you know Edward Scissorhands, and I mean, it just I, I was such a huge fan of his, and, and and all things weird and odd, and so it really I think gave me permission in a way to you know fly the freak flag in a way. Which is funny that when people are like surprised that Paul and I are friends, and it's like, oh, weird shit. <laughs> so, um, you know, to get a call from Paul, and, and the fact that all the permutations of life and all of the, the years that went by between the movies to think that I genuinely wound up good friends with this guy as he was mounting the Pee Wee comeback and thought of me for this role, and then called me to include me and help him revive one of the most important and beloved characters of my my childhood, my life, was like, oh my, I mean, it's, it's daunting, but like, I don't need to read this script, like, I'll do whatever you want, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. yeah. Because it's it's really me. Right? <laughs> yeah. If you know me, this is really, really me. Right. But but I'm a big fan of John Mark. So we're a nerd website, basically. So one of the things we like to ask folks yeah. is, what's your super secret geeky behavior? What's that thing that people would be surprised, besides Pee-wee? Um, Table, tabletop or role-playing games. Really? Yeah, I, I uh, Skype in with friends of mine from elementary school who are married with kids and just about every two weeks. And I've actually started um, I've actually started GMing again. Really? So it, was just a, it was a lot of work. You have to prep. Yeah. Um, so that's maybe something that... You're in the gaming expo, you'd be in, they have a whole tabletop area. Oh, and I, so I, I, our I, I, audience I, I, is losing it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually was just reading an email from Kevin Symbita, who's a friend of mine who created the, the Palladium universe. Oh, okay, yeah. We were just, um, You do Munchkin too? You like well, he, well, I was big into riffs and okay. the original TMNT. And um, he actually is, uh, he has a painting. The original is the first color painting that Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird ever made of the Ninja Turtles. And he's offered it to me at a price. Okay, <laughs> I was like, just giving it to you? Um, and so I'm kind of like, as I was walking in the room, I was thinking, like, I just read the email and was like, am I going to pull the trigger on that? <laughs> so that's, there you go. All no, right. that's great. That is, yep. um, you have no idea they're losing it right now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.